It's excellent to be able to open up God's word and particularly to close out such a, an amazing chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Before we read that, I want to start with a question. Maybe it's a question that you have thought about before. Maybe it's a question you've never thought about. Why do we come to church and sing? We come in, sing for 20 minutes or so, sit down, listen to God's word, stand up, sing again. Have you ever thought how weird that is? Like what, what area in all of life do we go somewhere, sit down, have somebody tell us to stand up, sing, sit down again, enjoy what we're doing, stand up, sing again, and then be like, that was a good morning. That was a really good morning. Now, I don't know about what restaurants you go to, but I've never been to a restaurant that I've gone and ordered my meal, and then before they bring the main course out, they said, okay, before we're going to bring the food out, we're going to sing a rendition of Sweet Caroline. Okay, no place does that. But here at church, why do we sing? Why do we stand up? Why does our voices go up and down? I mean, after all, aren't we here to learn about God? Why don't just come, sit, listen to the sermon, then get up and leave? Maybe. Maybe it would be a waste of time for some of us to come and sit and just listen to a sermon for half an hour and then go back home. Maybe, perhaps, we do it because the Apostle Paul instructed the church at um, Colossae to sing, to talk to each other in spiritual hymns. Maybe we do it because that's just what the Christian church has almost always done. Maybe it's because some of us are late in the morning and we need a little buffer before we get to the important part. Now, while there is a wide variety of views on appropriate kinds of music and instrumentation and presentation, there are actually very few Christian worship services that don't involve some form of singing. So why? Now, while we're at it, why do we do most of what we do on Sunday mornings? Scripture reading, corporate confession, communion, prayer. You know, there's a good argument that all of these aspects have been uh, mandated or suggested or modeled in Scripture. But why are they important to us here this morning, 2021, Crossridge Church? Mike Cosper, in his book, Rhythms of Grace, has said something about these questions. He says this, As important as legal language and clear facts are, God knows we need our imagination to be captured by truth. We need to be won by the surpassing beauty of Christ, the utterly compelling glory of God. We must see these as a greater good and a better hope than all the promises of our idols and daydreams. So God doesn't merely present the gospel to us in a contract. He gives us a wonderfully creative book in the Bible and invites us to engage with it with our imaginations. So Mike Cosper suggests that these aspects of our Sunday gathering play an important role in understanding God and allowing us to actively participate in the worship of him. Now, over the last couple weeks, we have been studying the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. The first part of the chapter describes what most commentators refer to as the supremacy of love. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church to engage their imagination as to what church would look like if the body of Christ could love God and love each other well. Now, the idea of the supremacy of love was not a novel idea in Corinth any more than it is today. People of all religious and non-religious persuasions ascribe to the idea that love is supreme, that love is the greatest good. Now, this led me to do a little bit of homework. Now, I decided to access one of the more interesting and obviously accurate research tools on the internet regarding love, Spotify. Now, I decided to see what types of playlists people have created regarding love. And let me tell you, it did not disappoint. Okay? Now, there were playlists about being in love and not being in love. Sad songs about love and happy songs about love. Songs about someone loving you and songs about you loving someone else. There were songs about wishing you were in love and songs about breaking up. Songs about wanting people to be close and songs about wanting people to stay away. Playlist upon playlist was filled with songs about love. So I started clicking on the playlist. I found that love hurts, love scars, especially when you don't love me tender. Uh, I was reminded that love is spelled L-O-V-E, and really all we need is love. I learned that we can be drunk in love. You can have true love, ordinary love, crazy love, stupid love, savage love, no love, endless love, and same love. You can point at this and say, this is love. And then you can ask the big question, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I, you, were, you were thinking it, so I just got it out of the way. So the conclusion from my homework was actually less than surprising. Love is an important topic in music. Shocking. In fact, some studies suggest that over 60% of all modern songs overtly talk about love. So why is that important this morning? Just like the quote from Mike Cosper, God's holy word, particularly 1 Corinthians 13, engages our imaginations to, two, to understand two important aspects regarding love. First, the supremacy of love. But second, the permanence of love. I think we're often comfortable looking in awe at the supremacy of love, but maybe surprised and possibly even a little skeptical at the permanence of it. While we can recognize the importance of the topic of love in modern culture, I don't think I've said anything that's brand new to you, I want to start by saying that I'm not actually going to stand up here and critique and mock modern views of love. I'm not going to ridicule what I feel are insufficient attempts to define love in music and movies. In fact, I'm not even going to make any passing jokes about Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift's view of love although that is very tempting. And the reason I don't want to do that is because that's not what the Apostle Paul does. Paul is not writing to the church about how they are loving each other really well. He's not writing to them saying, boy, couldn't the world learn a few things by how the church is loving each other? Instead, Paul is writing to a church that is desperately trying to find significance in the wrong thing. So I hope we can recognize that our culture, like us, yearns for and recognizes the deep, deep need to love and be loved. 
And instead of critiquing and condescending, I hope we can see both the supremacy and the permanence of the love of Christ and ultimately offer our church and our culture, as Paul writes, a more excellent way. So with that, let's read our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. And to get the full effect, I'm going to get a running start and begin in verse 7. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we read the word of God. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And go ahead and have a seat. So Paul has written about the durability of love and the ability for love to bear all things. And so now he's going to go on to say that love never ends. Or in some translations it reads, love never fails or love never comes to an end. So in this verse, we have our first point. What we learn is that enduring love is the true sign of spiritual maturity. So up to this point in chapter 13, Paul has beautifully described to the Corinthians what love is, what it is not, what it does, but we can't forget the purpose of chapter 13, and that's to contrast the temporal nature of the spiritual gifts with the enduring nature of love. While Paul is describing love, he is ultimately addressing a deep false gospel within the Corinthian church, namely that their spiritual maturity could be measured by their giftedness. The church was disunified because the people were desperately concerned with being individually recognized. The church could not be built up in Christ because the members of the body were too concerned for jostling for position. So in verse 8, Paul develops a contrast between love and spiritual gifts to help the Corinthians understand their misplaced motivations. Prophecies and knowledge will pass away, tongues will cease, but love never ends. I don't know about you, but when I read love never ends, I'm a bit unsettled. I think we should be unsettled, maybe even a bit shocked. I look around at the world And I see a lot of love failing. I look at myself, and I see my love failing. How can I love, how can love be never-ending when we see so many examples of the contrary around us? I think that's the point. That's part of the problem. If we look at the first section of chapter 13 as a checklist for us to accomplish, we will be utterly crushed by verse 8. One writer describes his journey like this. For many years I had read this chapter, chapter 
13, and applied it in the sense that these characteristics of love were something that I needed to do. I would read that love is patient, and I would try to be more patient. I would read that love is not irritable, and then I would try not to be irritated. If I found myself being impatient with someone, I would think to myself, I need to have more patience. I interpreted this chapter to be a guide on how I needed to behave. But this way of thinking about it never helped me achieve what the chapter describes. Love never fails. What I missed was that Paul is describing what actions result when love is the motivation. Paul's core message is about motivation. Understanding that we are dealing with motivation is the key to understanding how it can be that love never fails. Now, as I mentioned before, I think it's far easier for us to accept the supremacy of love in the first seven verses than it is for us to accept the permanence of love in the last six. And I think this is in part due to our tendency to read this as an instruction manual rather than the love that abides in us from the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking to the church about the motivation of love that is committed to benefit each other. Like Galatians 6, Paul writes that carrying the burden of another believer is actually what fulfills the law of Christ. This is precisely what Paul is driving at when he tells the Corinthians that they can have all wisdom and faith and tongues and prophetic powers, but without the motivation of love, those gifts are worthless. And why are they worthless? Because they don't have love, and love is supreme and lasts forever. Paul contrasts love with prophecy and tongues and knowledge in verse 8 because those gifts are not eternal. Are we going to read sermons in heaven? No. Do we need to speak in other tongues to proclaim the gospel in heaven? No. Are we going to read commentaries in heaven? No. Of course not. Why? Because these things will cease and pass away, or in a more literal translation, rendered obsolete or abolished. These gifts become unnecessary because we will be in the company of Jesus Christ, but love will last forever. The commentator Paul Gardner writes that love will never be gone. Rather, it will simply continue as now, but in a world where the sin that wars against love is altogether Removed. Whereas the gifts are nothing without love, love does not need the gifts for full revelation. Or as another writer puts it, love will remain the interpersonal currency of heaven. Now, there is no doubt that this type of love is difficult. Think about how many times we're told to love our enemies, not like them, not respect them, not just tolerate them but to love them. That is a high calling. And the truth is, if anyone who has been in the church for any length of time knows, sometimes the enemy isn't just outside the walls of the church, sometimes it's inside. Especially when it comes to position and spiritual gifts. There is jealousy, anger, bitterness, insecurity, and a host of other feelings that can grow in our hearts towards each other. In these areas, which is one reason why love as a measure of maturity is so difficult, but so important. Now, some of you may be sitting there going, why does this guy get to preach? Or 
Maybe you're sitting there going, I wish I could sing well enough to be up on stage. Unfortunately, it's the nature of our human hearts to value the stage and the position rather than the quiet, faithful, behind-the-scenes work. Spiritual gifts can be quantified, but love knows no bounds, no time, no end. And when we seek to build up the body of Christ as a whole, we are actually rejecting the desire to build up ourselves in the body individually. Understanding and acting on this truth is a true sign of maturity. Which leads us to our second point. One of the reasons why love is a measure of maturity is because our spiritual gifts are incomplete and will pass away. So far, Paul has given us a supreme picture of love and set it in contrast with spiritual gifts. He explains that spiritual gifts are useful to the body, but they are incomplete. Now, some of you know Rebecca and I, and you know that our relationship started as a long-distance relationship. I was in Seattle. She was living in Burnaby. Now, after we met, we started to email back and forth. And even as our relationship progressed to phone calls and then meeting in person, email was actually always a central part of our relationship. And when we got married, those emails, not as important. Now, fortunately, we saved most of our correspondence, and usually once a year, we'll revisit some of those emails. Now, some of them are serious, and some of them are tender, and some of them uh, are a bit funny, Uh, not because we were actually telling jokes, although I did think I was pretty hilarious back then, Um, but because of the obvious, incomplete knowledge of each other and ourselves. The way Rebecca and I knew each other then pales in comparison to how we know each other now. Now, I realize this is not exactly uh, a realistic picture. I was never in danger of choosing a folder of electronic email uh, over a real relationship. But I think that's the type of contrast that Paul is trying to make. In verses 9 to 11, Paul asserts that we know in part and prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And as one commentator paraphrased this section, he said, we know in fragmentary ways, and we prophesy part by part. Now, there's a bit of a debate as to what the phrase, but when the perfect comes, refers to. Now, some suggest the perfect, which actually means completeness, refers back to, um, sorry, uh, refers to the completion of the New Testament canon while others suggest that this completeness comes when a time of spiritual maturity is achieved. But I think a plain reading directs us to a more natural understanding that the perfect refers back to the love that it is described earlier in chapter 13, which leads most commentators to believe that this completeness will come with the return of Christ. This understanding reinforces the contrast between what is partial and what is complete. And as wonderful and as useful as the spiritual gifts are, they are provisional. And as it was once written, written, only a fool lights a candle in the full blaze of the sun. We will not need our spiritual gifts any longer. Paul uses another metaphor in verse 11 to build on this point. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up and gave up childish ways. Now, the purpose of this verse in context is clear. Childhood is compared to this present age. 
and when we need spiritual gifts. But the day of adulthood is coming when we will be reunited or united with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? These verses aren't written as a measure of condemnation to just do better, but telling of a time when our deepest regrets and shame will be washed away and we are brought into unity with perfect love with Christ when God's intended goal of humanity is fully experienced. That indeed is good news. Now I want to move on to point three from verse 12. Verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So in these verses, we learn that our spiritual gifts are partial and not fully realized. I want to ask you another question. How did the Corinthian church get so confused? How did they lose sight of the eternal for the temporal? Now, oddly enough, I think we can learn something about this from a British economist from the 80s whose name was Charles Goodhart. Now, Goodhart studied economics and was especially interested in looking at how people measure economics. He had a popular quote that later became known as Goodhart's Law, which says, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. What Goodhart saw in his study was a culture of people largely driven by measurement, which in and of itself wasn't bad, so long as the measurements guiding people guided them to a larger context. Goodhart wrote that we optimize for what we measure, and when we choose the wrong measurement, then we get the wrong behavior. Translation, don't lose the forest for the trees. Goodhart found that the businessmen and women he were studying were so focused on the temporal nature of their businesses, like higher quarterly gains, that they would often forsake the larger goals of the company, sometimes to the overall demise of the company because of things like dishonesty or poor management. Sometimes we might have a goal of competing in a race or losing a certain amount of weight, So we overexert ourselves too quickly or adopt dangerous eating habits to the detriment of our overall health. As the entirety of 1 Corinthians suggests, spiritual gifts to the Corinthians were regarded as a way, not so much that led them to Christ-like holiness and transformation, but more like a status symbol. Paul is trying to show the church that maturity comes through a love that decenters oneself not gifts them and puts them front and center. Now, once again, this is difficult. And trust me, I understand the irony that I'm saying this as I'm standing up on stage speaking to you. Spiritual gifting is real. We have differing gifts. And sometimes the truth is we envy the gifts of other people because we think they're more valued. If any of you have ever taken a personality test you know that most of the time we don't like the personality type that we get. In fact, sometimes we may take the test two or three or four times just so we can get another personality type. Whatever that means. We often only see a small picture of the responsibilities and burdens that come with having the more visible gifts. 
Instead, Paul is directing the church to love and to a love that sees our spiritual gifts to be used for the church in order that we can be built up and build up each other. Which means that real maturity comes from having a self-awareness that understands our own motivations. Now, as we move through verse 12, we're reminded that the image of God that we see now is not actually the thing itself. While an image in a mirror or a picture or a drawing has many of the same qualities as a real thing, it's not the same. And if you don't believe me, next time you go on an amazing vacation, you come home, take your 650 wonderful pictures that you love so much, invite your best friends over and show them every single one. We'll see how many friends you have left over after that. Okay, it's not the same. Okay, being there is not the same as looking at a picture of you being there. Now, we know this now more than ever, particularly because when Paul uses this image, he also uses a phrase that's uh, of face-to-face. For some of us, like myself, we haven't seen our relatives face-to-face for maybe upwards of two years. And while it's wonderful to have FaceTime and Zoom, it's not the same. It's not the same. Now, Paul adds this image, this phrase, rather, of face-to-face, which evokes a number of Old Testament encounters with God. Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis. Gideon encountering uh, the angel of the Lord in Judges 6. And Moses knowing the Lord face-to-face. The phrase communicates intimacy and a deep knowing relationship. In fact, the perfect of verse 10 is directly connected to seeing Christ face to face in the future. Now for me, this evokes two emotions. The first one is humility. It isn't that we can't know anything about God. But what we do know now is not fully realized and pales in comparison to what we will know. And the second emotion is deep affection. Verse 12 says, Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known. But that's not where it ends. I shall fully know. Even as I have been fully known. Notice it doesn't say when I will be fully known. It's present tense. The beauty of true love is that it is foundationally based on deeply knowing someone and being deeply known by someone. In fact, our mission statement as a church is we exist to know Jesus and make him known. But implicit in that statement is that we are first of all known by Jesus. Now there's a moment in... One of my favorite movies, The Count of Monte Cristo, where the main character, Edmond Dantes, is comforting his dying friend, who he calls the priest. His friend pleads with Dantes to use his freedom for good and not for revenge. Dantes, of course, refuses. God said, vengeance is mine, the priest says. I don't believe in God, Dantes returns. That doesn't matter, the priest responds. He believes in you. Now, I don't share this with you because the Count of Monte Cristo is some bulwark of Christian theology. I share it with you because no matter how many times I've seen that movie, and it's a lot, I can never hold it together in that scene. 
The simple fact that I am fully known and loved by the Most High God moves me every single time. 1 John, I think, 1 John 3, I think, captures this point. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Which leads us to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is our fourth point. The fourth thing that we can learn is that love abides in us individually and collectively. Here, Paul contrasts prophecy, tongues, and knowledge with the virtuous triad of faith, hope, and love, which he's so fond of doing throughout the New Testament. This verse becomes a type of summary for the entire chapter, which ultimately states that what is eternal should be valued right now. As the Christian philosopher Karl Barth once wrote, love is the future eternal light shining in the present. Paul reminds us that love should be the motivation that compels us to use our spiritual gifts in church. And to use these gifts properly is to use all we have and all we are to love each other, to see each other, and to serve one another. Love, then, is the practical outworking of faith and hope. So what more needs to be said about love? It's actually here I want to stop for a minute and make sure that we don't miss one of the most important words of this whole entire chapter, which is the word abide. To abide means to remain with or to dwell It's an odd type of passive verb because I can abide in my house when I'm doing dishes or when I'm sleeping or even when there's far too much Netflix and chill going on. Okay, I can abide. Abide is also closely associated with the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. In fact, Psalm 15 asks the question, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may come into your presence? It's a good question. So if chapter 13 reveals the supremacy of love and the significance of love and the permanence of love, what business do we have being part of that love? Once again, this is the beauty of the cross that we read in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. Us. Our love will end. My love will falter. 
but Christ's love abides in us and will never fail. Paul deviates from the practical workings of the church in chapters 11, 12, and 14 to remind the church that the true meaning of spiritual maturity is love and that ultimately all the gifts are given to believers so that we may love God and enjoy him forever. Going back to my original story, if we view the discernible gifts of love like a checklist, we will be crushed by our insufficiency. But if we view them like the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, as gifts that have been planted in us and mature through the Holy Spirit, then we will be at peace with ourselves and find unity within the church. How does faith, hope, and love abide in us? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Why is love the greatest of these? Faith refers to the response in our lives to the gospel of Christ crucified. Hope refers to the trust that is placed in God. But love is grounded in the very nature of God. Once again, 1 John 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As Paul Gardner writes, love is an activity, the essential activity of God himself. And when people love either him or their fellow person, they are doing, however imperfectly, what God does. So what does that mean for us now? We know we are supposed to pursue love, but how? If it's true, as one podcaster commented, that love and the fruit of the Spirit is most aptly demonstrated not by our actions, but by our reactions, then how do we change our reactions? How do we change our motivation? And I would like to suggest three words. Intimacy with Christ. When my view of God is right, then my view of myself is right. And then my view of my fellow person is also right. This may mean that we need to resist the urge to earn a position in church or in the eyes of God through the use of our spiritual gifts, understanding that these gifts are temporary and a means to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our spiritual gifts are never an end in and of themselves. They always point to a greater purpose of knowing Christ. We may need to repent. Maybe you've had thoughts of bitterness and envy and insufficiency regarding others in this church. And that has affected the way that you think about those people and treat those people and ultimately love those people. And if that's the case, we need to repent of that. Maybe you have been dissatisfied with the gifts of God and the gifts that he has giving, given you, envying others and quietly growing in bitterness towards God for not providing you with what you needed. If that's the case, we need to repent. You may need to relent, to abide in Christ, to stop striving and just be. If that's you, seriously, stop. Give in to the never-ending love of Christ. You are a loved child of God, full stop. 
And finally, we all need to rejoice. Rejoice in the love of chapter 13. Rejoice that this image is not supposed to lead us to despair, but to a deep abiding love for the God who saved us in order that we may love him and love others in return. This is the surpassing beauty of Christ, the utterly compelling glory of God. This is the greater good and the better hope that I pray captures our imaginations and leads us to actively participate in the supreme and permanent love of God. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We are insufficient. We do not deserve your love. But as we are told, even while we were still sinners, you died for us. You loved us. And God, I ask right now that you would help us to love one another. That you have given us so much in our spiritual gifts that we would use those gifts to build up one another and to see each other succeed and building up your name and glorifying your name. And I pray that we would see the burdens of the people around us and that we would take them on and that we would love them, even insufficiently, the way that you love us. And we, may we rejoice now. In your name we pray. Amen.